Well, welcome to The Point. As you can see, we're doing things a little different tonight. We're going to close out the night with baptisms and then a, a big set of worship at the end, just closing out the night, just worshiping God before we leave. And so I'm super pumped about that. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, I was, I was kind of thinking about our conversation for tonight and kind of where we've been going this whole time through this faith work series. And, and this question is kind of the question that culminates everything that we're going to talk about. In fact, tonight we are actually going to be in the passage of kind of the key passage of this entire series as we hit sort of the midway point. And so here's the question tonight. I'm going to put it up on the screen. What does it look like to have true faith? Now, everybody, you have your notes there where you can take notes tonight. I want to ask you to take notes. And I want to ask you to pay attention. And this is what I want you to do. I want you right now, as you got pens under your chairs or whatnot, I want you to write down just a few things real quick or maybe talk to your neighbor about a few things real quick that you think are representations of what it means to have true faith. So just, we're going to have a little participation here. You can talk back and forth real quick for just a second. Don't be talking about, you know, man, I found this cute outfit at the mall the other day. Like, be talking about this. And so talk to each other about what does it look like to have true faith. All right, all right, all right. Now that you guys have talked a little bit about it, hey, listen, I, I would like to get what some of your, uh, what some of your, your thoughts are on what it means to have true faith. And so, so we got anybody like to give their answer? You want to give yours? Oh, why, why are you going to call him out like that? All right, what was his? Okay, it's, it's something that's on the inside, all right? All right, what else? What other things? Raise a hand, where are we at? Back in the back, what you got, man? All right, unrelenting to share the love of Jesus. All right, what else? We got somebody else? What, what is true faith? What does that mean? Yes, sir. All right, all right somebody repents, and I think you said represents the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, Letting God be the leader of your life. Yeah. You raise your hand or you just, no. What else? Anybody else? Yes. All right. Believing that God's there even though you can't see him. Yeah. Dedication. Commitment. Yes. Back in the back. Believing something so much you're willing to die for. You're willing to put it into action. Let me get one more. All right. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. Is, okay. I think that all of those are representations of what it means to have true faith. And I think the evidence of what it means to have true faith is someone whose life really reflects the faith that they say that they have. And as you guys begin to explain and throw out those things, here's my question for you. Are the things that were just mentioned as something that represents true faith something that is a reflection of your life? When you think about your life, do you think about a life of action? When you think about your life, does your right life really look like someone who loves the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Is it someone who really looks like someone who, who would willing to even die for their faith, to, to make Christ the center of their life? I mean, are these things that, that we would define as true faith something that actually defines you? I mean, that's a serious question that we all have to ponder. And I, want, I think that's what James is hitting all throughout this book. That it is about a faith that is in action. What does that look like? What does that even mean? What is true faith? And you're going to see here in a minute that he addresses that there is a kind of faith that is fake. There is a kind of faith that is useless. There's a kind of faith that is no good. There's a kind of faith that we can buy into that adds up to nothing. Now I hate doing chores. Anybody with me? Preach it, brother. Come on. Man, what's your least favorite chore? Let me get some of your least favorite chores. What we got? What's yours, man? 
All right, dishes. What you got? Dishes. All right, what you got? Huh? Kitty litter. That's gross. That's why I don't have a cat. Go dogs. Yeah. Laundry. All right, what you got? Cleaning the bathroom. I cleaned two today. Yeah. Anything that involves physical labor. You sissy. Yes. Dog poop in the backyard. Yeah, that's, I, I would rather do that than clean out cat litter, though. I'll say that. Hey, listen, here's the deal. We all, have, we all have chores that we don't like. But listen, my least favorite chore is dishes. I stinking hate doing dishes. In fact, when my wife and I were dating, she asked me one time, she says, hey, what's your least favorite chore? And I said, dishes. And I said, what's yours? And she says, vacuuming. And I said, listen, I will vacuum the house anytime you want me to, as long as I don't ever have to do with dishes again. Let's make an agreement that when we get married, I'll do all the vacuuming, you do all the dishes. It doesn't work that way. Because <laughs> she usually does both. Because I'm, no, I'm just kidding. And... Um, Confession, God forgive me. Um, you know what's interesting though? I find myself doing dishes a lot because we share the load. And my wife has been really busy over these last couple weeks and she's been doing a lot of ministry stuff and meeting with people late and meeting with students and writing curriculum and meeting with a, some of our adult leaders and just doing tons of stuff. She's been working late here at the church because she works at the church as well. And, and there's been a lot of stuff going on. And so like I, I've been getting home before her and so I'm like, you know what, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make dinner so that when she gets home, dinner will be ready and, 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 you know, and, and that will just take that stress off of her because I know that she's you know, got all this other stuff going on right now and, and for her to get home really late to then have to worry about that. And so, so then I, you know, I get dinner prepared and I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to get the dishes done. And so I'm over there, and I literally, like, I got this smile on my face while I'm cleaning these dishes because I'm like, I can't wait until she walks in the door. And she's going to see that all the dishes are done. And the pile of dishes that is normally there after making dinner are completely gone. And she's going to be so surprised that I cleaned them all. And she's not going to have to worry about that tonight. And I'm sitting there thinking, why in the heck am I smiling while I am doing stinking dishes? I hate dishes. But what happens is this, is that... It's no longer a chore for me to do the dishes when I know that it's something that is going to please my wife and to make my wife happy. Because more than anything in my life, I want my wife to be happy. I want her to be pleased by me. I want her to, to know that, that I got her back, that we're a team. I want her to know those things. I think for some of us, that's how we look at faith sometimes. We look at Christianity as a chore. I got to do all this stuff. Man, I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to pray. I don't want to serve those people. Man, I want to go home and play black ops. I, I don't want to do that. It's not fun. And what happens is, is that we begin to look in our relationship with God, we begin to look at Christianity as this chore that we have to do. Let me tell you something. My relationship with God is not a chore. 
I don't read my Bible because I have to read my Bible. I don't read my Bible because I need to check that off my list for today. I don't read my Bible because I'm like, hey man, I know that there's other students and I need to be an example to these people that I'm leading. I don't read my Bible because of those things. I read my Bible because I love Jesus. I love God and I want to know more about Him. And the Bible reveals to us the mysteries of who God is. The Bible reveals to us the promises that God has for us. The Bible reveals these things to me and so I know that if I I get into the Word and I begin to study and I begin to read. I begin to connect to God. I begin to know Him more. I, I begin to, to understand Him more. I begin to grow in my faith with Him and in my relationship with Him. And that pleases me because I want to please God. And as much as I want to please my wife, I want to please God way more. And in the great faith chapter in Hebrews 11, the Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And many of us walk around and we say, man, I've got faith. I got this true faith. I got this true faith. But do you really have a true faith or do you have some perversion of what you think faith is? See, that's what was happening in the church here in James. James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus, and he's out teaching, and he's out, he's out talking to his people, and he writes this letter, and, and he addresses some of the issues that the churches are dealing with, and I think that they are so relevant for us today. See, I don't, I don't read my Bible and serve and do these things because, because I feel like I have to do those things. I do those things out of the person that I am in Christ. See, you don't serve people because you're supposed to serve people. You serve people because it's bursting out of you. It is who you are in Jesus. You can't help it. It just comes out of you. I mean, I walk in at night, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'll say names because I don't even care because I think it's awesome. Sterling comes up to me, and he starts talking to me. He's like, hey, man, I was just thinking the other day, man, about, about this story, and I just thought it would be cool if we can use it here in the youth group one night, and he starts talking to me about it. And he's like, man, you know, I was going back, and I was podcasting some of the messages that you did back in the summer last year before I came to the youth group here, and I was <coughs> listening to the podcast about how to share your faith, and I was learning how to share your faith, and I was looking at that kind of stuff. He says, hey man, do you know any other things that I can get and learn so I can learn how to share my faith better? He's like, I would love to learn other things so I know how to share my faith and tell other people about Jesus because I just want people to know about Jesus. Let me tell you something. I don't have to make Sterling go podcast. I don't have to make Sterling go get in his Bible. I don't have to make Sterling pray. Jesus is bursting out of that dude because he has true faith in Jesus. You can't manufacture that. You can't fake that. You either have true faith or you don't. And James chapter 2 hits it. And I want you to see what he says. We'll put it up on the screens. Starting in verse 14, he says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? Hey, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds or works? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? It's worthless. What good is it? It's pointless. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
He gives this scenario and he says, if you want to know what true faith is, true faith is not just you saying, hey man, I got faith. He says, listen, there's this kind of faith that is worthless. What good is it? It does no good. This, this faith can't save you. This faith has nothing. And, and many of us walk around believing in some faith or having some faith, some, some perversion of what we think faith is. And it's not true faith. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about people who are maliciously walking around going, I see people who are hungry, and I just decide, hey, man, I'm just not going to feed you. Hey, man, I'm just not going to serve you. I'm just not going to do this for you. He's talking about people who know the truth. He's talking about people who know the right thing to do, yet they are still not doing it. I'll give you an example. When someone's in need, someone's hurting, someone's dealing with a situation, you hear this all, time, all the time from Christians. Well, you know what, brother? I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Oh, your parents are getting a divorce? I'll pray for you. Oh, your grandfather's sick in the hospital? I'll pray for you. See, I think that the reason we say I'll pray for you is because praying for someone doesn't inconvenience our life like going and walking life alongside them. Someone who is dealing with tragedy in their life, they need you to pray for them, but they also need you to be present with them. Someone who's going through a difficult situation, Jesus says, those people, we need to weep with them. We need to come alongside them. We need to love them. We need to encourage them. We need to be there for them. Yes, pray for them, but it goes much further than that. When someone, like in this passage, says, hey man, when someone is hungry, when someone needs clothes, when someone's in need, and the reality is we have people in need around us all the time. In fact, there may be a day when you're in need, when we see people that are in need around us, he says, listen, yeah, pray for those people, but use your resources to meet their needs. You say, but Derek, you have no idea the inconvenience it's going to cause me to have to meet their need. I know helping people is an inconvenience. 100% of the time 100% of the time see serving people putting other people before yourself means that you have to put your agendas aside you have to stop with your plans you have to stop thinking about yourself you have to put all of those things aside so that you can meet the needs of someone else it is an inconvenience every time I cannot think of a time when someone called me and needed me in a moment and I just had bukus of time on my hand to give it to that person we are all busy we all have things going on we all have a life to live but the Christian the true believer the person who has true faith drops everything on their agenda to meet the need of someone else then he goes on <coughs> in the next verse and he says but some of you will say you have faith i have deeds show me your faith without deeds and i will show you my faith by my deeds you have faith i have deeds there are two extremes as you can see, we're, we're moving fast. There are two extremes on this. Look, let, me, let me just explain what he's saying. He's saying that, hey, in the church, some of you say, I have faith. And some of you in the church say, I have works. I have deeds. Some of you in the church are saying, hey, I got faith. And other people are saying, I got works. 
And there's this tension that seems to be going on in the church during this time of these people who are saying, well, I do stuff and I have works and all this kind of stuff, so I'm good with God. And people are here going, well, I have faith, so I'm good with God. And he says, and what he's saying here is, is that to the extreme, both of these can be dangerous. And and I want to explain it. There's two extremes. The first one is this. The first extreme is works without faith. Works without faith. To the extreme, this goes completely against the message of the Bible, completely against the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Because what works without faith says is this. Works without faith says that it is something about your performance that makes you good with God. And what we know through scripture is, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous. There is nothing about your performance that can make you okay with God. Nothing. Works without faith. You know the works without faith, people. It's all about rules. It's all about don't do this and don't do that. Have you ever been around these people who call themselves Christians and it's all about the rules? We call it legalism. You don't watch those movies. You better listen to Christian music only, boy. You better burn those CDs. Right? What are you wearing? Is, is your ears pierced? <gasps> you know what I'm talking about? The rules-driven people, the legalist. Hey, we got to be careful. We can say, man, we got faith in God and we walk around and we hammer everybody else who's not a Christian, everybody else around. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't this, don't wear that, don't look like this, don't walk this way, don't go hang out with those people, don't go to this place, don't go to that place. And it's all these don't, 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 don't. Listen, let me tell you something. That doesn't do anything for anyone who doesn't know God. They need you to love them, come alongside them, share the love of Christ, and you let the Holy Spirit of God work in their life because you can't fix them. Only God can. You let the Holy Spirit of God work in their life so that they can come to know Him and the Holy Spirit of God will then show them the way that they should live their life. The don't people, the legalists. The people that are far from God, people that are outside of the church, this is how they look at those people. They look at those people as the Bible thumpers, right? They talk about people who are, who are, who are haters in the church and the, the church just hates everybody. They hate all these people. It's a f- unfortunate that the world has that view of the church because the church should be the most loving place in the world because Jesus was the most loving person that ever walked the face of it. And we're to be like him. The second group of people is this. is the faith without works people. This is the other side. This is a part of, of, of what James is addressing here as well. The other side would say, well, I have faith, so I'm free to do what I want. I'm free. I'm free in Christ. Grace, grace, grace. Free, to, free in Christ. Do whatever I want to do. And yes, you do have freedom in Christ. But what happens is, is that these people will say, hey, man, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want to do. I prayed some prayers, so now I'm in heaven, so I can go live my life how I want to. And I'm good with God. I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm already in. I'm good. It's not a big deal. I got freedom. I can do whatever I want to do. Free in Christ, free in Christ, free in Christ. What happens is these people tend to be lax on sin. 
They, they, tend to, they tend to think that, man, I can just come and just kind of hang out around church. I can come to services and things like that. But nothing really in my life has to reflect it because, hey, I'm good with God already. I prayed some prayer. I mean, it's, I'm good. I'm in. Free in Christ. And what happens with these people is the people outside of the church view these people as hypocrites. Let me say this. There, are, there is nothing more unattractive to people outside of the church than legalism and hypocrisy. When I talk to people who don't come to church anymore, it is always one or the other. There are too many hypocrites in the church, too many people who say one thing, but their life looks like another. Too many people who, who are there doing all this kind of stuff, and they're talking junk behind my back. Too many people that are this and that, and da 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 There's too many hypocrites in the church, or it's the other way around. Man, I hated going to church when I was young. I feel like everything I did, someone was looking down their nose at me. Someone was telling me I shouldn't do this. Someone was telling me I shouldn't do that. I mean, I just hated going to church, because if that's what God's about, I don't want any part of it. It's the two extremes. I'll never forget my last church. I come walking in the back, and it was a little more traditional church. I come walking in the back, and I had, and I had uh, uh, sandals on, little flip-flops, you know what I'm saying, some, some reefs. And so I come walking in the back of the church. I got my reefs and my jeans on, and, uh, and this old lady and this old man come up to me. And this lady, she looks at me, she stops me in the aisle, and she goes, you should be ashamed of yourself. Well, dang. <laughs> what did I do? And, uh, and she says, and dressed in a church like this and shoes like that. I said, well, in John chapter 3, John the Baptist is talking to some people and he says that one is going to come after me whose sandals I'm not fit to carry and he's talking about Jesus. So apparently Jesus wore sandals so I'm just trying to be like him. <laughs> Boom! Put down your pipe and smoke it, old lady. Now get out of my way. I go into my seat to sit with my wife. I didn't say that last part, but I wanted to. I wanted to say, Psh, throw an elbow on her neck. Hope you die soon, lady. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say that stuff. We're not recording this, are we? Oh, we are? Dang. All right. I wrote this down. Listen. Satan does not care if you embrace works without faith or if you embrace faith without works as long as you don't embrace Jesus Christ. Satan does not care if you embrace works without faith or if you embrace faith without works as long as you don't embrace Jesus Christ. And that's what James is talking about here. He's talking about a real, committed, serious relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ. So what does it truly mean to be a Christian? What does it truly mean to have faith? Remember a few weeks ago, I talked to you a little bit about, uh, about this, this idea that in the English language, we have faith, we have belief, we have trust. And faith is kind of our, our heart response. It's our, you know, we, we just, we believe this is going to happen. And, and we talk about belief as, as kind of our intellectual response. And I, if I can, you know... Uh, kind of, you know, come to some sort of conclusion, then I kind of can believe that. So it's kind of an intellectual thing and how, and how uh, trust is more of a feelings thing or more of a, um, a response thing to, to how we believe and how, we, and how faith is. And I was talking about that sort of interaction. Well, he comes back to that here and he, he hits on this for one second because he's talking to us and he says, what does it mean to really be a Christian? And he hits his heart and he says this uh, in, the, in the following verse. Let's flip it, flip it up on the screen there. Um, the next one, he says, listen, but you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that 
and shudder. See, there's this kind of faith that is irrelevant. That people think that they have. And they say, I believe in God. I have this cognitive understanding of who I think God is. I believe that there is a God there. I believe facts about who God is. And James comes out and says that. He says, listen, you say that you believe. Hey, listen, even the demons believe and they shudder. I mean, think about this for a minute. The demons and Satan have seen God face to face. They were a part of the angels that were worshiping him at creation. They they were cast out of heaven, the demons were, so they literally have been in the presence of God before. Not only that, but the demons know more about the scriptures and the Bible than you could ever possibly know in your entire life. They know it front and back. They know the plan of salvation better than you know the plan of salvation. They know the Bible better than anybody in this room and all of our knowledge put together. They were present when Jesus died on the cross and they saw it happen and they saw him raised from the dead. And the scriptures tell us that even the demons believe and they shudder. He says there's so many people in the church who say that they believe and have even shuddered. But that doesn't mean that you have true faith. See, the difference is the demons don't repent. Repentance means to turn to God, to turn away from your sin. Repentance means to do a 180. The demons don't do that. Satan doesn't do that. They believe in God. They know. They know their fate and they shudder. But they don't repent. True faith has repentance at its core. Someone seeking God and turning away from their sin and turning to God. And there's two sort of things that came to my mind as I was reading this. One, knowing ain't enough. The demons know. You may know more about the Bible. You may can write a dissertation on the hypostatic union. Some are like, what the heck is that? You may argue predestination and Arminianism and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't have a relationship with Jesus. The question isn't as much, do you know God? The question is, does God know you? See, Matthew, Jesus is talking. He says, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I'll say, depart from me. Listen, depart from me. I never knew you. But Lord, did we not do these things in your name? Did we not do these things in your name? Did we not come to the point? Did we not get baptized? Did we not do this? Did we not do that? You bought into some kind of faith. But it wasn't true faith. Some form, some reality that you thought was truth. Some faith that you wanted to mold and make it like your own so that you couldn't do anything effective for the kingdom of God. Depart from me, I never knew you. You say you know me, but I don't know you. And that trembling isn't enough. The second point I get from this, trembling isn't enough. Shuddering isn't enough. So you say, man, you, you have no idea, man. I was, I was crying and I was, I was shaking. And man, my experience with God was real and it was this and it was that. And I was, oh man, it was, I was serious about it really. Just because you felt guilty about your sin doesn't mean you repented from it. doesn't mean you turned to God. See, we live in a culture in the South where everyone believes in God. We're in the Bible belt. 
Christianity is just another fad. Jesus is my homeboy. It's what I'm supposed to do. It's how I'm supposed to, to believe. And James is confronting it and saying, yeah, but is it how you live? Because if you truly have this faith that you say you are, then it is going to be accompanied by action. It's going to be accompanied by works. It's going to be accompanied by that. And then he gives us this example of true faith. And he gives us two examples, really, but we don't have time for that, so I'm going to give you one. He gives us the example of Abraham. He gives us an example of Abraham as a person of true faith. I want you to notice what he says here in in the Scripture. He goes on and he's talking about Abraham. And he says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without works is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. Listen, they're working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. He gives us this picture of Abraham. He says, hey, Abraham's an example of true faith. Let me give you the quick version of the story of what happened with Abraham. Abraham is this dude who lived a long time ago. And Abraham, and, and if you want to read the story, you can go back to Genesis. And Abraham uh, begins to, uh, uh, God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to go away. I want you to go to this land. I'm going to show you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And so Abraham all, has all these riches. He has God's favor on his life. He has everything. And then basically, uh, God comes to him one day and says, man, how's things going? And Abraham says, man, listen, I have everything, but the the one thing I don't have is a son to carry on my name, to carry on uh, in this great nation that you've called me to be and said that I'm going to be. And through Abraham waiting over 25 years, eventually when Abraham is 100 years old, God opens up his wife's womb, Sarah, and she gives birth to a son, Isaac, his one and only son. He had been waiting 100 years of his life to have this son. Now, first of all, that's supernatural in itself. Can you imagine a 100-year-old? dad dude that's probably i mean you picture abraham and you're like oh abraham's look, looks like Derek, studly like Derek does and i'm just kidding and uh and uh, no he was an old man and i can imagine that isaac loved his son and he cared for his son and his his son was the apple of his eye he was everything and then god comes to abraham and he says hey listen i know how precious your son is to you so this is what i want you to do i want you to take him up on the mountain and i want you to sacrifice your son i think this was a test god was saying to abraham i want to know that if i i want to know if i'm still the most important thing in your life i want to know if i'm still the priority so god asked him to sacrifice the most important thing in his life this has nothing to do with the message but sometimes god may be asking you to sacrifice the most important thing in your life so that he knows that you trust him and that you love him more than you love that thing in your life. Just a thought. Abraham doesn't complain. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't worry. He goes up on that mountain. He builds an altar. He ties his son up. He lays him on the altar. He pulls out a knife. And he's about to drive the knife into his son. And God says, stop, stop, stop. Don't lay a hand on the boy. He provides a ram to be sacrificed. He says, that is the kind of faith I'm talking about. The kind of faith that believes in the promises of God and is willing to go at whatever extreme necessary in order to honor the promises of God. See, this is what I know. God had promised Abraham that he was going to make a great nation out of Isaac. God had made a promise Abraham didn't question God. God, are you going back on your promise? No. Abraham was willing to take him all the way to where he was. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says it this way. 
The writer of Hebrews said that even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead, God was going to keep his promise to Abraham. And Abraham believed that. He believed the promises of God. And the promises of God for him were so valuable that he was willing to do anything that God told him to do. It wasn't a chore. Let me put this practically for you. We all have different struggles, right? I mean, there are Every one of us in this room has struggles. If you're free of struggles, and you're, then you're, you're sinless and you're like Jesus, and no one in here is like that. So we all have struggles, right? Some of you struggle with lust. Some of you struggle with pride. Some of you struggle with, you know, just different things. Next week, I'm going to be talking about taming your tongue. We're we'll going to be going in, in James chapter 3. What does the Bible say about cussing? What does the Bible say about all that kind of stuff? What does the Bible say about our language and how we speak? I'm going to be talking about that next week. So make sure you're here. It's going to be awesome. And I talk to a lot of I talk to a lot of students that are that deal with pornography. The struggle with pornography. Girls and guys, but specifically because I'm a guy, I talk to a lot of guys that struggle with pornography. Some look at it daily. And it's a big deal. If I had a briefcase up here with one million dollars in it, and I was to say to you, I will give this briefcase of one million dollars to you. If you don't look at pornography in the next 48 hours, this is what I know. Not a single person in their right mind would look at pornography in the next 48 hours. You wouldn't do it. Why wouldn't you do it? Because the value of what is in that briefcase far outweighs you doing that. For the Christian, the value of the glorious riches of God's grace through Jesus Christ far outweigh any sin, any situation that we could deal with in our life. I wrote this down. I want to read it to you because I wrote it better than I could probably say it. If you believe and have true faith in what God is giving you in the riches of His glorious, in the, in the glorious grace of Christ, and if you believe that God is going to follow through on His promises that He has in His Word, and if you believe that Jesus is going to hold you accountable at judgment and is going to reward you with heaven when you deserve hell, then it is going to show up in the way that you live, in the way that you repent, in the way that you serve, in the way that you pray, and in your purity. That's the truth. This is what happens, though. You don't know what the promises of God are. Because they're here. And you can't know what they are if you don't read this to find out what they are. And I can hang on to the promises of God because I know what they are. So when adversity hits my life, my faith doesn't unravel because I know what God has promised. There's no concept in all of Scripture of a passive faith. And that's what James is confronting us with. Faith is active. It is passionate. It is working and moving. It makes a difference. 
People are changed because of faith. True faith. I think that how a lot of us in church, as I was thinking about this, call ourselves Christians, this is how a lot of us in church, I think, respond. I was thinking of it like, if I was driving down the road in my car, no, I'm just kidding, I'm going to fall back. If I'm driving down the road in my car and I look over and I see your house on fire, dude, I'll be freaking out, I'll be honest with you. I've never drove down the road and seen a house on fire. So if I'm driving down the road and I see your house on fire and I'm like, I'm like, Oh, junk, Hannah's house is on fire, or your, whatever, put your name in there. And so I run up to the door of your house, and I'm like, beat on your door, open up, open up, open up, open up, that was the doorbell, by the way, open up, open up, open up, and you come up to the door, and you open the door and say, well, hey, Derek, how are you doing on this lovely morning? And I say, you got to get out of the house, you got to get your family, you got to get out of here, your house is on fire, it's burning down, it's burning down, you got to get out of here, man, get them, and get everybody. Well, Derek, I believe you. There's no need to overreact. Why don't we come in for some tea and crumpets? And then we'll get everybody out of the house. I'll be like, are you insane? Get out of the house. The roof is going to cave in. Your house is going to burn down. You're going to be stuck underneath it. It's going to end in disaster for you. Get out of the house. It's okay, Derek. Is it okay? I don't think so. This is what I know. What I know is, is that for some of you that are in this room, the house is burning down. Your life is burning down. You're doing it your way. And God is saying, I love you. I want to save you. I want to, I want, I want to draw you to myself. I want, I, want to, I want to pull you out of this house. And you're going, I'll do that later. It's not a big deal. The Bible says that our life is like the dew in the morning. Here in the morning, gone in the afternoon. It's but a mist. A vapor. What are you waiting on? And here's the reality. If you really believe the scriptures, then you would also know that the friends that you have that don't know Jesus, their house is burning down as well. And how evil would you be if you drove up to your friend's house and you saw their house on fire, and instead of going and knocking on the door and telling them about the fire and telling them to get out of the house, if you just kept driving on. And every time that we get the opportunity to share our faith with our friends and we don't do it, that is exactly what you're doing. Years ago, I was at camp, and I'm going to close out with this. <clears throat> Adrian Dupree was speaking, and he said, <clears throat> I was thinking of some of the most evil things that could possibly happen. And he said, one of the most evil things I think could happen he told this story about this, this really foggy night, it's a true story, and a, a boat had hit this bridge, a big tall boat, you know, one of those bridges that kind of pop up, but the, the, the people didn't see him coming because it's too foggy, so it was down, and the bridge hit it, and it knocked the whole bridge out. Well, because it was so foggy, the cars couldn't see that the bridge had been knocked out, so <clears throat> cars just kept driving off into the water, and just people after, one after another, just died, went plunged to their death. He said, what if 
you stopped your car just short of that bridge, he said, what would you do? Would you get out of your car and go wave to other people and say, stop, stop, the bridge is out? Or would you just pull out your cell phone and start texting and sit there in your car and pay no attention to the people that are driving off to their death? He says, you want to know what evil is? Evil would be sit there in your car and do nothing. He says, let me take it a step further. He says, what if you had the cure for cancer? I mean, almost every single person in this room has been affected by cancer in some way. And if you haven't, you will be. Someone in your family, a friend. I mean, cancer is no respecter of persons. He says, what if you had the cure for cancer, but you didn't tell anybody? You kept it to yourself. He says, I think that that person would be way more evil than a person who didn't stop a few cars driving off the bridge. You could save the lives of thousands. And then he said this. I'll never forget this. He said, but I think the greatest evil is this. You have the cure for hell. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? So I think there's two responses on a night like tonight. The first is this. There's some of you in here who are Christians, but your faith has been as inactive as anything. You're making no difference. You're serving no one. It's all about you. Everything's an inconvenience as long as it doesn't fit in your little world. And you need to repent. You need to turn to God. And you need to apologize. And you need to beg God for mercy. And during this next song, I, I, I want you to do that. If you need to come to the altar, if you need to do it in your seat, whatever, I want you to do it. And secondly, is a second group of people. You don't have true faith. You've never put your trust and faith in Jesus and let the grace of God change your life. When I'm talking about, I read my Bible and I pray and I tell other people about Jesus, not because I have to, but because it is who I am, because of what Christ is doing in my life, you don't resonate with that at all. And the reason you don't resonate with that is because, is the Spirit of God really in you? Are you burdened for the things that God is burdened for? Does your heart break for people who are far from Him? And for you... You need to repent, put your faith in Him, your true faith, and surrender your life fully to Him. And here in a few minutes, we're going to have some baptisms of students who have said, I've given my life to Jesus, I've surrendered it all, I'm tired of playing around, and I want everyone to know about it. And they're going to publicly express this faith that they have in Christ. And I believe it should be public. So this is what I want to do, and Danny's going to lead you guys in a little bit of response with us later, if this is something that you that you do tonight. But I think God's calling some of you home tonight. So this is what I want to do. I want everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're in here tonight and you say, man, Derek, I, uh, that's me, man. I, I, I need to put my faith in Jesus. I need to surrender. I'm tired of playing games. I'm tired of playing the church games. Yeah, I know a lot about God. Maybe you know nothing about God. But dude, it doesn't affect anything in my life. I don't have a relationship and I want to get that relationship right. 
If that's you, man, I just want you to talk to God right now sincerely from the heart. It's not about the words that you say. It's about the heart response that you have. It is about the surrender. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to say a little prayer or whatnot. And you can pray this to yourself or some version of it. But just talk to God. I want you to pray this. Father, I'm sorry. I realize that my sin hurts you and it hurts the people around me. I realize that in my entire life I've been playing a game and it's been all about me. And tonight I want to surrender my life to you. I'm tired of playing games. I want you to change me from the inside out. I want you to save me. Just wrap your arms around me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody keep your head.